Hello and welcome to Hush Blackwell's Labor Law Insider Podcast. I'm your host, Tom Godar, and together with my Hush Blackwell colleagues and thought leaders from around the country, we will discuss and explore the ever-changing issues in the world of labor law. President Biden promised to be the most pro-union president ever, and he is fulfilling that promise. The next four years promises to be a wild ride, so buckle up and join us on the Labor Law Insider Podcast. I thank you so much for joining the Labor Law Insider once again, and we continue today on our discussion of National Labor Relations Board remedies. Boy, it even sounds boring when I say it, but it is hardly that. In fact, the amount of strength of the remedies that the board can offer will change behaviors. It will make um, our clients and unions and employees either more bold or a little bit unsure as to how hard um, the, uh, the stick might be if the board pushes hard on either going to trial or even insisting upon full remedies within the context of resolving a disputed uh, claim of an unfair labor practice. And before we start, I wanted to let you know we will have a special third part to our Remedies podcast series. The General Counsel released a new GC memo, Memo 2206, and the board is looking to push stiffer remedies in the nationwide Starbucks organizing campaign. These developments occurred after we recorded this podcast but thought they deserved a separate discussion as they offer lessons regarding this fast-developing topic. Um, We're once again joined by our labor law insiders, Terry Potter, Rufino Gaetan, and of course, Adam Dorr. And we were just concluding uh, last time with a little description of what the new stance of the general counsel is, and hence the regions of the National Labor Relations Board, as it relates to seeking relief through the uh, use of an injunction, uh, 10J relief. Uh, Terry, let me ask you a question before we go any further. Is it the board itself that has the authority to grant an injunction, or is it uh, the court system that steps in, and might that uh, uh, be an interesting and changing part or component to this whole question of remedies the board wants to impose? The filing takes place in federal court, uh, not before an administrative law judge. Um, yeah, the court is that which is uh, most appropriate um, for the filing, meaning um, the court and the jurisdiction where the ULPs are taking place. So you're going to be before a federal court judge who's going to have a very limited knowledge of this process. And frankly, the burden um, of proof um, necessary to establish a 10J, although it varies among the courts uh, in general, that standard is relatively low. Um, And that makes this um, even more uh, burdensome. Uh, for employers going forward when you've got this threat of 10J relief hanging over you, which is, in many cases, relatively easy to obtain from a federal court judge who doesn't want to get involved in this dispute to begin with. He wants to hand it back to NLRB and wash his hands of it. So as I uh, learned in law school uh, eons ago, Uh, Of all the disputes, only a very small percentage get uh, filed before a court or a tribunal. And of all of those that are filed, 
only a very small percentage actually go to trial. I was always told the rule of tens and that only 10% of those go to an appeal, which means that 90% of the work is done in resolving cases before a judge uh, raises and lowers her gavel or his gavel. Um, and I am assuming um, that you're going to tell me that's about right with the National Labor Relations Board, that most of these cases don't go before a federal judge or an administrative law judge, but they're resolved by the parties who come up with some sort of a compromise. Is that is that about right, uh, Rufino? It is, it, it is right in general. I, the, the problem that we're seeing now, however, is that with the GC's push for complete relief. So essentially what she's saying is regional directors and agents of the regions do not settle with an employer unless you're getting 100% of the relief that you would that this employee is entitled to or this group of employees is entitled to. What that does from a practical standpoint is it reduces an incentive for any employer to say, "Okay, I can take my chances in litigation and and end up paying, you know, let's say it's $10,000 to this employee." or I can settle now for $10,000, and, and that's the worst that can happen. There's not an incentive there to, for the employer to say, okay, there's less risk with settling. Um, and when it's a matter that might impact things into the future, so we're not talking about an isolated issue, it's more of a broader policy for an employer. You know, Let's say you've got a, an employer that is uh, a nationwide employer, has employers all over the country, this decision doesn't affect just this individual or group, but everybody else, that makes it less likely for that employer to want to settle. They take their chances. You're, you're going to see, um, I think, less or fewer cases actually settle because of this um, directive from the GC. Um, the other uh, sort of consequence of that is that for those employers who do choose to settle, I think they're just going to have to be prepared to pay much more than they normally would have um, because the regional, uh, the regional directors are not going to be willing to essentially offer a discounted settlement. So it's either pay more now or take your chances in litigation. Well, some of this isn't brand new. I remember my first NLRB case and walking into talk about and what I thought was negotiate and what I was told about well, you're going to pay 100%. I thought, well, okay, good. And you only have a 50% chance of winning, so let's reduce it by 50%. Uh, I, I discovered quickly that the board doesn't quite approach it that way. Um, but more than that, it's uh, that the remedies, um, again, are stiffer, tougher. And uh, Adam, maybe you could comment. There's also sort of a post-remedy portion of this, which is notice, um, which is in a sense a public confession. Uh, historically, you were able to have the board waive some of those or, or make them relatively narrow in terms of where and how you were going to post the result. And you could put in language that said, well, while we don't accept that our actions were a violation of the National Labor Relations Act, in order to facilitate labor peace, we have decided to blah, blah, blah. I understand some of those kinds of options are changing as well, Adam. Is that correct? And what kind of consequence is there because of that? Yeah, th those aspects are definitely changing as well. Um, and it's interesting you mentioned the example about uh, thinking that you can negotiate the, the pay. The same thing has happened with the notices. Uh, the, the, the ability to negotiate the wordings and phrasings is 
um, greatly diminished now. So it used to be, you know, you, you uh, dispute the allegations, but you agree to post this notice advising employees of their rights. Now the board is insisting on language that um, in essence admits the violations and, and offers an apology for it on top. Um, it, it really is um, a black eye for the employer to, to be pushed to do that. Um, and on top of that, um, the notice posting is becoming a, a notice publication. Um, whether they're insisting that it be texted out or emailed out um, or even now posted on social media um, or, or even more publicly than that, uh, the scope of that notice posting, uh, both in terms of its contents and how it's distributed, um, have, have also greatly expanded. Well, this sounds kind of like a perfect storm, Terry. Um, are employers going to find relief in three or five, four or five years after spending six figures by going to federal court to challenge the board's decisions? Are they going to find relief from uh, a court? Uh, perhaps, um, but perhaps not. Um, <laughs> it's <that's> helpful. <laughs> well, yeah, of course, that's attorney speak. Uh, the, pro the, the problem is, is that... Um, the act is very broad in terms of the powers of the board in seeking a remedy uh, and unfair labor practices. It's, you know, the courts have determined that those remedies are subject to administrative judgment reached after the board has balanced all factors and equities and wide policies of the act. I mean, about as wide open as you get. I mean, there is not a checklist here, folks where you know, the remedy shall be and a ULP shall be the following. That checklist doesn't exist. Um, it changes, if anything, over time, depending upon um, the administration who's uh, in charge of regulatory bodies such as the NLRB. And right now, the, the checklist has expanded in terms of additional remedies. And, and the courts, for the most part, are going to defer to the administrative judgment of the NLRB as to these remedies. It's outside of finding that a remedy is punitive in nature, um, they're not going to reverse a decision uh, on, on the remedial aspects of a, of a, of a case before the board. So uh, not good news. All right. So thanks guys for all of this happy um, news for uh, our clients who are as uh, as we all know, largely um, organizations and institutions, not unions or individuals. Um, so what's the advice we're giving to try to stay out of this whole morass of being a target for a ULP and within that context for a 10J um, injunctive hearing? What kind of advice can we offer? And I'll give each of you a crack at this. And I guess, Adam, I'll start with you. What kind of thoughts might we share with our clients and friends about um, conducting their business in such a way as to have a minimal target on their back for a union or an individual to claim that their labor rights have been violated. Yeah, for me, in my book, prevention is the best approach here. Um, and there's there's two prongs to what I'd say is the low-hanging fruit there. And, uh, and of course, um, employers should work closely with their labor counsel um, in doing this. But first, I would suggest 
uh, first and foremost, review and update handbook policies, work rules, those kinds of things, because those are a huge target of the NLRB right now. So with its expanded uh, pursuit of remedies, um, I, I would I would first say let's get rid of the low-hanging fruit there. Uh, and number two, it's important to train supervisors, managers, HR departments um, on the fundamentals of labor law and best practices for maintaining a strong, positive work environment. Uh, I think that's going to be the best way to avoid ULPs and these uh, expanded remedies. And Adam, that sounds like this is advice not just for those who have find themselves in a union environment or subject to an organizing campaign. But when you talk about handbooks and remedies, that's for every employer, it sounds like to me. A hundred percent. Yeah, that's that's the thing. This law and all these policy decisions that we're hearing from the general counsel, they, they impact virtually every private employer in the U.S. that has a, a, a meaningful impact on commerce. Um, and it doesn't matter if there's any union activity there or any existing union relationships. Um, so it, 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 it does have broad applicability. And I do advise all employers um, to review these issues very closely because a minor workplace issue can quickly balloon into an ugly headline or public protest if you're not careful. Um, good advice. Good thoughts, Adam. Rafino, um, other thoughts that you might want to share with our, our listeners in terms of how to reduce the risk of ULPs or to manage it when it occurs. Yeah, well, I'm just going to ride uh, Adam's coattails here, but I think training is, is crucial, training supervisors in particular. Um, you know, so many issues that come before the, the board um, on a ULP charge are typically issues that a supervisor could have addressed um, and had they just known what to do. And so training supervisors is always a key, right? Not just what you're supposed to do, but just as importantly, what are you not supposed to do? So don't threaten an employee with termination because they're complaining about their wages or because they bring a complaint about a safety issue to you. Those sorts of things are, are really important. And then the other would be, how do you actually respond as the employer? So assuming that you're getting these complaints worked up the, the chain of command within your organization, you have to have a plan to quickly address those things. Um, because I think a lot of the other issues that come before the board are issues that an employer had noticed, you know, they knew about them, they um, were given multiple opportunities to address them, and then they didn't actually act on that um, and then never responded to those concerned employees. So having that open dialogue with the employees who are raising these issues will go a long way towards preventing charges. You know, that's such good advice, Rafino. I've had uh, the good fortune of working with a large client for many years. And uh, just like the lottery ticket, uh, there's always people trying to, to find their way in. And usually it's been discrimination based on race and uh, gender and so forth. And we've really never had a settlement of any sort of uh, significant proportions. And they've really not been walking in a bad place. One employee basically refused to clean up a mess and said, we shouldn't have to be asked to do that. Discipline followed. And the largest amount we'd ever paid um, and a posting and all that jazz was because one of the plaintiff's lawyers was smart enough not to say, hey, how do we do this with discrimination laws? But they said, I think we have a board case here. And it made that a whole lot easier. Terry, are we seeing plaintiff's counsel becoming more sophisticated about using uh, this kind of action on individual cases, as opposed to some of the other areas of relief, whether it be OSHA or Title VII? Yeah, no question. And 
um, I mean, let's face it, with social media uh, being what it is, um, an explanation of what pr protected concerted activity is and the remedies involved are much more well known uh, to the legal community, including those who uh, normally represent plaintiffs in employment actions. And so you see the headlines, you know, employees reinstated because of engaging in concerted protected activity. Um, hey, uh, these guys are not idiots. They're going to pick up on that and they're going to use it to their advantage and um, trying to get relief for uh, their clients who they feel um, were subject to improper um, uh, discipline under the NLRA. You bet you they're going to take advantage of it. Well, we'll see how often our phones ring in the next uh, month or so after um, our friends take a look at this podcast to see, uh, can you review our handbook? Take a look at these policies. Are there any places uh, where we might be uh, in trouble? Uh, but really, it's always a pleasure uh, to have you folks on our podcast. It's uh, great to hear your practical um, experience and to learn from your very thoughtful and practical advice. Thanks so much for joining us. And thank you, listeners, for uh, joining us on our Labor Law Insider podcast and how remedies are, frankly, tilting the uh, way in which employers and unions are seeing their world. And don't forget to join us in a few days for part three of our podcast regarding remedies. Terry Potter and I will discuss the newest remedy pronouncements from the general counsel and the unfolding tougher stance of the board when it comes to enforcement and bargaining orders for employees and election campaigns, even without a union win. Do be sure to join us uh, for that third part of our series. Thanks a lot for joining us today. Goodbye.